Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode. That's where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'll be joined later in the program today by Anthony Bradley, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Acton Institute, and Noah Gould, Alumni and Student Programs Manager here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss the He Gets Us ads during the Super Bowl, Tucker Carlson's trip to Russia to interview Vladimir Putin, and how old is too old to be President of the United States. But first, this week, we're joined by a special guest, Mustafa Akil. Mustafa is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, focusing on Islam and modernity. He's an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute and author of Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. He is also the author of the essay, The Rebirth of Heretical Islam, a review of the book Wahhabism, The The History of a Militant Islamic Movement by Cole M. Bunzel, which appears in the winter issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty. Religion and Liberty is available at select Barnes & Noble and Books A Million stores across the country, but you can save the time and trouble by subscribing to get our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times per year for only $29.99. We'll include a link where you can subscribe in the show notes for today's episode, along with a link to Mustafa's essay. Mustafa, welcome, and I... uh, why, Why don't we start here? While I have always believed our uh, our audience is a very well-informed audience. I want to start very basic because I think as you uh, as you note in the essay, the history of of Wahhabism, what all happens in uh, that is covered in the book, uh, can get a little complicated. so let let's just start with the very basic. and can you give you know, a very short, differentiation between just Sunni and Shia Islam, and then we can kind of go off into the history of what uh, eventually becomes Wahhabism. Thank you so much, Eric, and thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to do anything with Acton. Um, Now, people have written a lot on Wahhabism, especially in the past two decades, but this new book by Cole Bunzel, I think, is a good one, really. I mean, it just goes through all the history of it with a lot of new documents and origin, original texts and gives a good story of it. And I, I was happy to review it for the Religion and Liberty magazine, which I'm a fan of, by the way. You know, I, I look forward to receiving every uh, issue. And now, to back to your question. Well, in Islam, there are two main branches, and Sunni and Shia, everybody knows that, right? And Sunni Islam is the dominant form. Over 85% Muslims are Sunni, a little over 10% are Shia. And sometimes people ask, which one is more moderate or more liberal? I mean, well, both of them have more liberal or reformist versus more strict uh, or illiberal trends within themselves. So they have a spectrum within. And Wahhabism is a specific movement within Sunni Islam that appeared in the early 18th century in today's Saudi Arabia, which was more rigid than the existing Sunni mainstream, and actually which blamed other Sunnis for being heretics and for being not true Muslims. 
and started as a militant movement against them. I mean, it's it's it happened in eighteen and sorry in seventeen thirties. The book tells the story very well, and I briefly summarized uh, when this cleric Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He was this, and it, and it happens in Nejd. It's in Central uh, Arabia, which is a backwater. I mean, until there was oil, nobody was interested in that place. It was very poor and uh, very close to the outside world. And he built this narrative that other Sunnis, most other Sunnis, have gone off the rails. They have they claim themselves to be true Muslims, but they are actually polytheists. You know, that's the biggest concern in Islam from their beginning, like qualtheism or shirk. That's the biggest sin. Well, how are they polytheists? Well, because they engage in Sufi shrines and they go there and pray to God uh, at the sight of this great dead man. That is not polytheism, but they, they interpreted that as polytheism. And that was the beginning of a militant movement. They first attacked Ottoman Empire, which was the seat of the caliphate, the superpower of Islam at the time. It was very violent, very militant. And what, what one thing that is interesting is that they said, I mean, uh, Ibn Wahhab said, uh, it's not just enough to disapprove sin, you should actively hate it, <laughs> right? So, I mean, being vigilant, being fanatic against what you see as heresy. And I think that's a destructive trend in any religious tradition, honestly. And so they were moved with that. And that was the beginning of the movement. And then... Uh, uh, the book explains that it calmed down in the 20th century uh, out of political considerations, but then radical movements still would spring from, from that uh, original idea. So Wahhabism is a militant and more rigid form of Sunni Islam, which at times has delegitimized other Sunnis and even attacked them, and we see repercussions of that uh, throughout history. How abnormal or uh you know out of the mainstream was this kind of a militant brand of islam i mean can can you find other you know prior to the rise of wahhabism other historical examples of this kind of militancy or was this was there is there something unique in the character of of wahhabism uh, there were other examples before, and actually that's why, uh, for example, when ISIS appeared, this notorious so-called you know, Islamic State and caliphate appeared in Iraq in 2010. Now, ISIS has interesting Wahhabi roots, and this book emphasizes that, and I, I emphasize that in my interpretation. But when ISIS appeared, a lot of Muslims actually likened ISIS to a very fanatic group that appeared in the very first century of Islam, that is known as the Khawarij in Arabic. In, in English, they're called the dissenters. These were basically um, a fanatic group which condemned other Muslims other than themselves and saying, this is the only right path. And those who are not following us, they had sloganized a few verses. So they attacked basically both proto-Sunnis and proto-Shiites. I'm saying proto because the Sunni Shia division wasn't even there, but the, its its seeds was uh, its seeds were coming. Uh, there was a civil war in the in the midst of the civil war. This fanatic group condemned other Muslims and even attacking them. So they're they're abhorred by everybody, right? I mean, they they were the ultimate fanatics. Of course, these are these bad ideas are not the only thing about Islam. Actually, whenever I write about the Khawarij, these dissenters. I write about the good guys, <laughs> the good theology. Uh, there was a theology uh, known, uh, proposed by the group known as the Murgiites, 
uh, now in English they are uh, translated as the postponers, and that's an interesting term. Uh, they said that this idea of who, this question of who is the good Muslim, who's the bad Muslim, who's the sinner, who's the real believer, only God can give the ultimate answer to this uh, question. So let's postpone this debate to afterlife to be resolved by God. Now that that is uh, that 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 is something I see as a root of liberalism in in in, in, in theological traditions. John Locke made a similar argument actually in his book uh, Letter Concerning Toleration that was very interesting. So in Islam there are moderate trends, there are radical trends. There are tolerant ones and there are intolerant ones. So the the Khawarij, those dissenters were the original militants that really would attack fellow Muslims saying that you have become an infidel. And a lot of people, when they saw this rise of Wahhabism, uh, they, they saw this as a rebirth of this Khawarij, uh, this dissenter fanaticism. And ISIS is a, another rebirth of that, uh, it, it, which happened in just past two decades. Walk through a bit of the history. How does Wahhabism become so wrapped up in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the establishment of, of that country? The story goes back to even before Saudi Arabia itself. It begins again in the 18th century with the rise of this whole Wahhabi movement. This uh, scholar, al uh, uh, Wahhab, he made an political alliance with the family of al-Sud, so that's, that was a powerful family. And so here's a ruler and a cleric. It's, it's integralism, you know, par excellence, if you will. There's a political ruler imposing a doctrine and a cleric giving him the right idea, right? I mean, sorry for borrowing a Catholic term here, so. Well, no, you, it's interesting you brought it up because there was, uh, one of the things I'd circled here was uh, a, a quote that you've excerpted. The, uh, do not think if you say, this is the truth, I follow it and I abjure it, all that is against it, uh, but I will not confront them, i.e. the saints being worshipped, and I will not. And I will say nothing concerning them. Do not think that uh, that will profit you. Rather, it is necessary to hate them, to hate those who love them, to revile them, and to show them enmity. And the enmity word sticks out to me because I, you know, I remember hearing that from Sohrab Amari um, in the piece that he launched against uh, David French, where he's talking about, you know, basically his political enemies. Um, that enmity is kind of the motivating factor in all of this. So, like, it's you know, I yeah, well, okay. of course, I'm making distinctions about where we actually see. Uh, this informing radical violent movements. We, you know, we, ha we haven't seen the uh, Amariites try to storm any castles, actually. But um, there, I did, that connection kind of jumped out at me that the, the language seems to be similar. The focus on, you know, hate of those who are not with you. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think every religious tradition and group has the right to say, we... Are following this path because we we think it's the best one, it's the most true one, most righteous one, and they can even you know sometimes criticize or uh, they can disapprove whatever they see as right and wrong, uh, whatever they see as going astray. But hating them, physically attacking them, you know that that is that that sort of uh, persecuting them. I mean that that approach has brought a lot of trouble to our religious traditions. I mean Catholics know that, right? I mean the whole uh protestants know that i mean the whole uh 30 years war in in europe was about catholics and protestants punishing each other because they thought the other guys are the heretics 
Uh, I mean, Christianity learned lessons from that. That's why I value the classical liberal tradition with thinkers like Locke and ideas of religious freedom. Like, uh, we can have our religious convictions, and but you know, let's agree to have a, a, a live under a state based on natural law. I mean, I think that's very much the U.S. founding story, and I think that's a very valuable story. Uh, I think Christianity should not go back to <laughs> the era before that, although some people, as you said, are kind of advocating that in a very surprising way. But in, in Islam, we are we have theologies and we have religious movements who are tilting towards this pluralistic solution. I mean, okay, we have different religious groups and we all do our own thing. Many, I think today, Muslims would say that, although they wouldn't philosophically maybe fully, fully articulated in a liberal sense. But we also had in Islam from the very beginning, these fanatic groups which thought that the other guys are heretics and we should state, use state power. We should use some form of violence to get rid of them or to, to bring them to the right way. And uh, it has many examples. It has, uh, there are various stories of inquisition in early Islam, quote unquote. Uh, at some point, the defenders of free will were persecuted in the uh, early Umayyad empire, for example. That's a little known story because uh, the the rulers, the oppressive rulers thought that if people believe in predestination rather than free will, they will be more obedient to the ruler. So they promoted the idea of predestination and opposed free will. Then in, in the early Abbasid Caliphate, the rationalists, which I would mostly agree in many issues, but they at some point used state power to enforce their doctrine. That was wrong. And in, in in various times in Islam, uh, there has been better or worse eras, but Wahhabism was this kind of a, a new fanaticism on steroids that appeared back then. And it was crushed by the Ottoman Empire. Um, it was then, uh, it, it had a few rebirths. There's the first Saudi state and the third Saudi, second and the third Saudi state. At the third Saudi state, which ultimately created what we know as Saudi Arabia today in 1932, Ultimately, thanks to the political ruler and his pragmatic approach, Wahhabism calmed down. They did not necessarily condemn other Muslims. They maybe criticized them. That's okay. And uh, they kind of went with the international law and order uh, system, which created modern-day Saudi Arabia. But the idea, the original idea that if there are Muslims you can condemn as infidels or heretics, you can and you should go after them. That that is why that had a rebirth in the sixties and seventies. That's the book explains with the new political uh, obsession. Now, in this new obsession, which led all the way to ISIS, the issue was not the Sufi shrines and saints anymore, but Muslims who believe in secular systems, who if who accept in a secular government, vote in a democracy. They become infidels simply because of this because they, they should aspire for Islamic regimes. If they go for a secular regime, they become. So that is, again, a very extreme position. Um, but it became the battle cry for groups like Al-Qaeda and ultimately ISIS. So I think this book shows groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, it's not that they have nothing to do with Islam. Sometimes Muslims defensively say they have, uh, but they have something to do with Islam in the sense that the Crusades or Inquisition, you know, had something to do with Christianity in the sense that it was a very oppressive interpretation of a major faith tradition. We should be vigilant and uh, alert about those interpretations, but they certainly do not define the faith and, and even its mainstream. How influential would you say Wahhabism is in the Muslim world today? 
It's a small, uh, one thing I should say is that Wahhabism is not the only problem, if you ask me old, also. Like, I mean, uh, I think there are Sunni or Shiite groups who are not Wahhabi. For example, in Pakistan, there are Deobandis or Barelvis. Barelvis especially are big on blasphemy laws. So I think focusing on Wahhabism as the only problem would be wrong, as sometimes people do that. There are many illiberal teachings uh, in, in these traditions, but Wahhabism was the one on steroids, the one on that that was more fanatic. And it's still there. Now, what is interesting is that Wahhabism, sometimes Wahhabism uh, creates these offshoots where you have very fanatic and violent groups uh, like uh, ISIS, and, and that's obviously a problem for all of us. I mean, ISIS attacked more Muslims than non-Muslims. I mean, people should remind that. On the other hand, Wahhabism, uh, in the in the mild version, also it creates this uh, understanding that the ruler should be obeyed no matter what he does, even if he's an oppressive ruler. If he's a Muslim ruler and he's upholding Islam by keeping churches and sorry mosques and basic Islamic symbols, then you should obey him and you should not criticize him. So it also goes against the idea of a democracy. It goes against the idea of a uh, right to criticize the ruler, which should be there, or, or the people in government. So uh, Wahhabism is still the mainstream creed in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it uh, In other parts of the Gulf, there are other groups known as Salafis in different parts of the Muslim world. And mostly they're not violent, but if they go violent, it's, it creates this Salafi jihadism that mix, which is very dangerous. Uh, groups like Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab, I mean, these are radical groups in parts of Africa. They come from that Salafi jihadi mix. So it is a problem. And I think the book uh, puts it well in the sense that the problem is, at its core, it comes across, as you said, with the idea that there are different groups in Islam, we are the right one, and we show enmity against those let alone non-Muslims. I mean, non-Muslims are already hated by these groups, but even other Muslims are hated by these groups, which creates all these fanatic movements, unfortunately, and it's popping up here and there, partly because of the political context as well, of course. Talk to me a little about the the, the current state of, of modern Saudi Arabia. What is the relationship between um, the Saudi royal family and uh, Wahhabist Islam? I, I remember this particularly. I mean, of course, Wahhabism, as, as you've kind of alluded to, um, has been perhaps overly focused on, but I, it certainly descended from 9-11, from the fact that there were, uh, you know, a lot of the the hijackers of 9-11 had come from Saudi Arabia. There was a lot of conversation, I remember, from the years that followed that about the promotion of Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia and exporting it out of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, but we have heard, or at least I've read plenty of stories about how, say, Mohammed bin Salman is supposedly a, a moderating force in in Saudi Arabia. What is what does Saudi Arabia look like right now? What is the nature of the relationship between the royal family and and Wahhabism? How strong is it there? Yeah, Saudi Arabia is grovingly looking like Dubai, and that might be a good thing, but also with some problems there. I should emphasize. Now, uh, the of course the. The elephant in the room about Saudi Arabia today is the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, as people shortly call him. Now, he has uh, dominated the Saudi state, although he's still the crown prince, but his father is very old and he, he runs the show. And there's a lot of talk in the West about him 
bringing in some social reforms, like, oh, women can drive now. That's great, right? I mean, or people in Saudi Arabia can have a meeting where men and women freely mix. You know, that that's a big taboo. Or uh, women are not necessarily forced to cover their head in a, in a social environment. Or uh, there will be even alcohol in Saudi Arabia for the first time. So those kind of social relaxation of religious rules and society. Uh, that is very much on the news. And I think these are fine. I mean, I don't think religion should be oppressive. And I think people should drink or not drink based on their choices. I mean, Muslims should have that freedom. Uh, even if it's a sin, it's between them and God. So I, I, I totally have a more liberal attitude and social issues. Um, on the other hand, though, the same MBS has been very politically very oppressive. The infamous, you know, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, Saudi journalist, you know, five years ago in Istanbul, my hometown. So it was an example of that. There has been other people who tweeted against the one policy of the government. And then, then that person just gets jailed, even gets a death sentence. And so uh, that's why I would welcome the social reforms and, and the very fact that Wahhabi clerics and especially religion police, the mutawa, you know, as known in Saudi Arabia. So that was curbed. That's fine. But if it comes with a political oppression even worse than before, then I, that's not a scene that I would celebrate. And and unfortunately, this is a pattern we've seen before in, in, in the world of Islam in the 20th century. You've had rulers that curb uh, the religiously oppressive elements in society, uh, bring in some more secular space, and that is often good for women who are not practicing or um, like kind of modernization in society. For example, one example was the Shah regime in Iran. Um, people, you know, share photos, very common in the West, that, oh, women were wearing uh, short skirts in 70s in Tehran. It was free and all that. Well, socially, in some sense, yes, but uh, it came with a very oppressive political regime. Shah was certainly very oppressive on his critics. Also, even actually, the Shah was even worse. At some point, the father, the first Shah, even banned headscarves for women who wanted to wear headscarves. So this is not a really full-fledged liberal political liberalism that I would like to see, where you have a less oppressive understanding of religion plus political rights so that people can speak up their religion. So it's not there. Haven't we seen examples of that here and there? There are sometimes, but I think that is the ideal, I would say. Otherwise, also, it can backfire too. Uh, I mean, the Shah regime certainly backfired, and what we had is a uh, is, is the Iranian regime, of course, in the past 40 years. So uh, I would encourage Saudi Arabia or any other Muslim society to, yes, uh, to get rid of ideas of religious policing and allow individuals to live their lives they, they choose and, and women should be able to choose their dress. These are important things that should be figured out. But at the same time, people should not disappear in a, and end up in a torture cell because they criticize the ruling uh, king or prince or prime minister or whatever that is. What lessons should uh, both Muslims and non-Muslims take from this history of Wahhabism, what is being explored in this book? Uh, what what do you think are the important takeaways for uh, for practicing Muslims as well as for um, you know people uh, non-Muslims all around the world? Well, I mean, this book shows uh, as well as I mean the whole history of <laughs> what we're discussing, right? Shows that religion is a very 
potent force. It's it's very it motivates people and it is uh, a very de decisive force in human history. And it's not going to go away. I mean, there were people who thought that religions are going to disappear because this is the secular age and modern age. Uh, by the way, if religion goes away, that's not always a good news as well. So we've seen that too, of course. I mean, we've seen communism in the 20th century. We've seen Nazism. These were not religious ideologies, but they were more destructive than any religious ideology actually we have seen. Uh, but I think the power of religion, and that is true for Christianity, Islam, even Judaism, any religion, I think, uh, can be channeled towards compassion, channeled towards uh, modesty, channeled towards doing something good for the fellow human being. And I think that's when religion really shines. Um, uh, but it can be channeled towards hating <laughs> the infidel, the the uh, channeled towards showing enmity, you know, as you said, uh, to whoever you see. And when, when religion goes towards that direction, it becomes a very destructive force, an oppressive force. Um, now, to get there, you don't have to give up your religious convictions. I mean, we have an interesting, like, you can still say, well, yeah, as a Muslim, I think these ideas are really not good. And you don't have to embrace everything. But, uh, but showing humility in your convictions, as well as showing a basic respect to humans, regardless of what their convictions, because they're fellow human beings. I think that should not be lost. And Wahhabism shows uh, in, within Sunni Islam that uh, it, when it's lost, you know, it, it can become a very oppressive and, and violent force. I mean, same thing with the Iranian revolution. Of course, this is not the only oppressive story in the history of Islam, but it is an important one. Uh, also, I think... To Muslims who still aspire for Islamic states, it's a it's a wake up call because you don't know whose Islam will that be. <laughs> I mean, you want a wonderful Islamic state. Well, maybe it's not your Islam, but the Islam of the guy who will you see as a heretic. Or what about you getting it and the person whom you see as a heretic, what will that person end up with? So we've seen that story in Pakistan. We've seen that story in the Arab world in Iran. And I think these are all uh, failed experiments uh, showing us to Muslims that what we need is liberty for all and, and, and human dignity, respect for human dignity for all, while still are uh, keeping our convictions. And, and if you don't, you know, you end up with religious violence and persecution. And this book tells the story of how it happened in the Saudi context uh, very well. The essay is The Rebirth of Heretical Islam. It's a review of the book Wahhabism, The History of a Militant Islamic Movement by Cole M. Bunzel. And that appears in the winter issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty. We'll put a link in the show notes to the essay, as well as a link where you can subscribe to Religion and Liberty. Uh, Mustafa, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Eric. It's always a pleasure to do anything with Acton, and thanks for having me. All right, I want to bring in now Anthony Bradley and Noah Gould, and let's jump off with, uh, of course, the big event from last night was the Super Bowl, um, proving that you can have a 
rather poorly played game that is still an interesting game that got very, very good and very, very interesting at the end. The Chiefs winning in overtime, starting a whole bunch of sports narratives about Patrick Mahomes' place in the pantheon of NFL quarterbacks and if they can continue to rebuild teams around him, if he can uh, challenge some of the records that Brady and the Patriots have. Going to be interesting to watch from a football perspective, but I want to turn our attention to some of the advertising during the Super Bowl, which included for the second year in a row two spots under this uh, marketing campaign called He Gets Us. I believe that these ads, uh, just like the ones from a year ago, were produced actually by a uh, marketing agency, advertising agency here in Michigan uh, in Grand Haven. And they... I think this is – I kind of find this fascinating because it seems like nobody was pleased by these advertisements. In fact, I'm going to read to you a tweet here from a uh, um, friend of this program, uh, previous guest, Mike Cosper at Christianity Today. What's clear today is that an effort to present Jesus to the Super Bowl audience in a time when the church is deeply polarized will be met with contempt by both sides. The ad was too, quote, woke for the folks I follow on the center right – the ad too expensive for the folks I follow on the center left. You know, why not sell the perfume and give the money to the poor? I'd like to know what people whose minds aren't formed by this hell site, meaning Twitter, actually think of it, but they aren't on here. Well, I'll, I'll answer that to a certain extent, which is giving my experience in marketing and advertising. If you're going to spend that much money on advertisements that you're going to run during the Super Bowl, I'm going to presume that they when they created those, did them for test audiences in the demographic that they're trying to reach. And I think one of the important points about it, something else that Mike had, had commented last night, which is there are people trying to parse like the Christology of the uh, what's presented in the ads. And Mike makes a good point, and I would echo it, which is if you even know what Christology means, the ad is not for you. I have this meme saved on my phone of Bart Simpson writing on the chalkboard and the message he's writing over and over again is you are not the target market. You are not the target market. And I think a lot of people who are commenting on it, at least, you know, the kind of people that you would find on a place like Twitter, really aren't the people that they're trying to reach with this ad. They're trying to reach a largely more offline secular audience with a positive presentation of the message of Jesus Christ. But I think Mike does draw good attention to the point that it doesn't seem like it's pleased anybody that there's an effort to do this. So uh, I should describe um, the ads to you. The first one was called uh, Foot Washing, and it's these AI-produced images of you know people, uh, a priest and what I think we can assume is someone who's gay on the beach. He's washing his feet. Um, people in what you would think would be adversarial relationships that they would have uh, reason to have beef with each other. And one person is washing the other person's feet. Uh, and the second one is this is entitled, and we'll put the link to both of them in the show notes, is Who Is My Neighbor? Where it shows oh, right. all of these images of people that you might, you know, kind of people you might cross the street to avoid. And reminding them that they're your neighbor, you're supposed to care for them as well. Um, I'll make one more point and then I'll turn it over to you, which is I can't remember who I first heard this from, but I'm sure you will uh, – I imagine you both remember the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints used to run these advertisements. That Basically, the message of them was like be a good person, be nice to each other. 
And as a Catholic, I always wonder, like, why doesn't the Catholic Church just do this? Um, it's an interesting question, but I, I, again, I find the reaction to this kind of interesting, and I'm not in the demographic that they're targeting. So to a certain extent, I don't know if they were effective or not. My presumption, again, is that they tested these and they believe them to be effective with the people that they're trying to reach. But it wouldn't be the first time that an agency fell down on its job and had a bad focus group and didn't really know if these ads were effective or not. So, Anthony, what did you make of them in the context of last night's Super Bowl? So I've been really interested in the in the reaction. I think I saw them as quite benign. I wasn't really bothered by them particularly, I think, in part because, first, it actually isn't the real Jesus. So it, it wasn't. Uh, him, uh, but then uh, secondly, I think. What do you that, mean? What do you mean by that? Well, it's a, it's, it's an advertisement, right? So it is theater, and it's it's the artist uh, imaginations about about this figure, the Christ, uh, engaging the certain types of, of people. I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, that is the actual uh, real Jesus, that it is the the advertising agency's depiction of their modern application of the story of, of Jesus that we read in the Gospels. And they do, as all preachers and teachers do, have some, some uh, creative license in the application of the Christ to the modern period. And like happens on Sunday. Sometimes you get it really right. Sometimes you don't. There's some questions in terms of whether or not the the application of, for example, washing feet of the types of people in the ad, in terms of the context of the original passages and in, in the Gospels, is accurate or not. I mean, that's really an exegetical question, I think. And then, and then uh, also... Um, it's their attempt to try to, I, I don't want to say modernize, but to to really seek to uh, apply the sorts of, of impulses where people want Christ to connect to culture. And it was a genuine attempt to do that. And do they hit it right on the, the mark? I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, like you said earlier, I'm not the tar- target audience. I mean, this is not an ad that you would roll into a, a, a church on a, on a Sunday. Um, I wonder, though, if, if perhaps the point of the ad is just to raise questions, right, to help people think, oh, well, maybe, maybe I didn't think about Jesus doing this, or maybe I wouldn't assume that Jesus would like this. Or maybe just to raise questions, well, in my experience with Christians, they wouldn't have done this in the past, right? They wouldn't even have made these connections. And so maybe the Jesus that I thought, based on what I heard, isn't, isn't true, and I need to go investigate it more. So, I, I mean, I personally wasn't, wasn't too up, upset by them. I think I, I understand what they're attempting to do. My question is whether or not exegetically the context fits, right? So are the, are the, the kinds of people that, have, that are having their foot Wash in the ads are those the same kinds of people that that Jesus would have washed the feet for in in the Gospels? I mean, that's that's more of, of an issue for me. And and as as long as those are consistent, 
I don't think anyone should have any problems with, with what they saw. I think the real interesting question here is why are people so upset or what was the nerve it, it touched? And I think there's maybe two things at play. One is every Christian who's watching the ad kind of thinks to themselves, okay, if I was spending, you know, $14 million for ad spots, what would I want to say? What's the quote-unquote right thing that Christians should say in this moment? And so if it's not kind of what I would say, then I'm going to maybe critique it. Um, Because I agree with Anthony, it's kind of benign. In some sense, it had an interesting just kind of moral, like, hey, we should be nice to each other, the two ads kind of put together. Um, It had a little bit of a blank slate quality where you could kind of impose anything on it, which which somewhat makes it maybe why, in a good way, you could ask interesting questions. And it also seems like people kind of got mad about what they assumed it was saying or wasn't saying. Uh, But I think it's the medium here is really going to limit what you can say. I mean, it's not going to be kind of a, here's a systematic theology of what Jesus said and was and did. And so it's really limited what you can do in a 30-second ad spot. Yeah. Well, I mean, the goal is how do you get people to want to know more, right? So, like, how do you get people who you don't know their background with faith, you don't know their familiarity with the gospel, maybe they grew up in the church and have left it. You're, you're trying to pique interest in people who are not currently there. The, the, the money question to me I find fairly uninteresting because the, I mean, you, we could, and I, I, I'll ask this question, you know, should the church advertise? Should any church advertise in a way like this? Um, yes, it is a lot of money, but I find rather uninteresting the point of people who are like, you know, $14 million, think of all the people that you could feed with that. Un- understandably, the church is consumed with the eternal salvation of the people that it is trying to reach. Both of those missions they consider to be important and not necessarily one to the exclusion of of the other. So I don't know that I find that to be all that interesting. It is the only time we have left in American life where every almost everybody's attention is turned to the same thing. So I understand what they're trying to accomplish. I have no idea how effective it is, but I'm at least interested that they're making an attempt to do something like this because it's so unusual, because it is the kind of thing we don't expect these days, because there is a belief that the church and people of faith should be out of the public square, that commercials like this are where you're supposed to see, you know, singing frogs and, you know, all kinds of other crazy things that we remember from the Super Bowl commercials of years past. Um, There is no reason to me whatsoever that the church can't be represented there as well. The only question is, you know, the ones that Anthony has raised, as well as, is it effective? Is it actually doing the thing that it is trying to do? And I don't know that I know the answer to that. I'm only, again, relying on my belief that if you're going to spend $14 million on advertising, you're going to try it out with a few people that you think you're in the target market and see if it's hitting with them. You know, I, I think there's there's also this interesting sort of evangelical impulse that uh, now's our chance, right? We have We have all of this attention. And I think there is this belief and, and it could be from a history of revivalism, perhaps that, that if we can just get the right message out, it'll stir the emotions and it'll unlock X, Y, and Z. And I mean, I guess the question is in terms of effectiveness, you could spend that much money on a 30 second, 40 second ad. 
You also could spend that money unlocking the sorts of relationships in people's lives at a local level that tend to, to sort of move the ball further down the field to keep the, the context consistent. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but it seems to me in terms of, in terms of what's been the most effective at changing people's orientation toward the truth is a personal relationship with someone that they trust not a 30-second ad. Now, I think what happens is that, and we saw this, remember years ago, there was that Tim Tebow abortion ad. And and I, I think there are some people that are like, this is our chance to call people to, re, to, to repent, right? This is our chance to say, okay, we got them. We got you. We're, you know, this is, our, this is our chance to rebuke everybody, mm-hmm. right? So it, 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 it seems that, that there, there are those who are upset because this, this is, on the one hand, well, this is supposed to be our chance to rebuke everybody for being a sinner and call them to repentance. Well, the ad didn't do that. And on the other hand, well, this is our, our one chance to, uh, to present Christ as, as someone who is not what we imagine. And instead of doing it through charity, they're doing it through a 30-second ad, right? And I think p- perhaps the polarity uh, might have to do with a lot of those sensibilities. I don't think that the— you're going to find anybody who is going to ever tell you that, like, you know, what led you to Christ, a television advertisement during the Super Bowl. I don't think you're ever going to get that answer from them. I think the in the same way that advertising for deodorant would work, which is to, it is not to get you from the moment that you see the ad on television to get up off the couch, go to the store and buy the stick of deodorant. It is the next time that you remember that you need deodorant and you're in the aisle and you're like, Oh, yeah, that's right. You, the, the commercial sticks in your head, so you remember that brand and you pick that brand. The idea would be that, you know, the the next time circumstances in your life kind of pick at that hole in your soul that yearns for um, something transcendent, you know, the, the that we are homo religioso, that we desire to be religious, that, you know, that that kernel sticks in your brain. It, you know, it is the, again, there, there is something I, I will admit that I am defensive about in the context of this organization and the work that I do here that is a little gross about the way you would talk about, you know, this ad about Jesus being the top of a marketing funnel that's bringing people down closer to, you know, accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But, the go, you know, going out there and telling people about the message of Jesus Christ in the same way that our mission here at Acton is to promote, promote a free and virtuous society. It's a marketing function. Um, you may not like to talk about it in those terms, but that is what you're doing with people when you are telling them, when you're evangelizing them. So I, I think that would be the theory that, you know, people may at a, at a time kind of remember the the general thrust of this message at a time that they need it, and it may lead them to more questions to finding a church and to finding salvation that way. Well, I mean, it's possible. This is crazy what I'm about to say. It's possible the point of the ads was just to drive people to the website. I mean, that, that really could just be the point. And maybe, maybe in terms of whether or not it's effective mm-hmm. is determined by how many hits, how many hits did the web, how visits, and, and interactions did the website get after the ad? And maybe that's all this is about. And so maybe everybody's upset for no good reason. Maybe they weren't actually trying to evangelize. Maybe they weren't trying to do these things that people were criticizing them for. Maybe they just wanted to drive traffic to the website. And I think they'll do that. Let's move now to our second topic, um, 
amongst this group. Third topic after, of course, the conversation I had with Mustafa to begin the program. Tucker Carlson was in Russia, or I don't know exactly when he was, but the video of this interview that he did with Vladimir Putin came out last week. Tucker, now that he is no longer on the Fox News channel, releases his program on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, A lot of people who were uh, very excited about the fact that it had something like 200 million views within 24 hours or something like that. Again, this is where Eric, the marketing guy, will show up to remind you those views don't represent much of anything. A view, as it is counted on the website X, formerly known as Twitter, is more than two seconds of you watching it and with the video, at least 50% in the view. So think of scrolling on your phone or on a desktop. If at least 50% of the video is on your screen for two seconds, you have been counted as a view. The number of people who watched all two hours are very few and far between. They do include me because these are the things that I do for you, the audience, so that you don't have to. And I will say two things. One, the people who went way too hard at Tucker Carlson for the notion of doing this from the very beginning um, were at least a little bit wrong. He closes the interview over 15 minutes of questioning Putin on the imprisonment of Evan Gershovitz. I can can never remember how to pronounce his name. Gershovitz, who's a Wall Street Journal reporter who has been imprisoned in Russia. He did a pretty good job of pressing Putin on that. The rest of the interview, um, I mean, there's some unintentionally hilarious elements to it where Putin says to him, you know, Tucker asks him why he invaded Ukraine. And he's like, if you'll allow me like 30 seconds to a minute, the 25 minutes later, he is up to like 16th century Russia in this history lesson that started in like the 800s, which is just a history textbook pulled straight from the Soviet Union. Um, so I think the the general thrust of a lot of people were that I don't think that they were all that wrong in what this interview actually was, which is how you have to ask the question of how valuable is it to have somebody like Tucker get what Putin is saying directly from the source. But it is still mostly just Putin's propaganda about why he is doing what he is doing which does raise the question of how valuable is what Tucker Carlson has done here in going over there to ask these questions to Putin. The the one element that I will also add and then throw it open to you guys is you best believe the parameters of this were worked out ahead of time. They knew he was going to ask about Evan Gershvitz at the end of the interview. That was probably the, you know, the give that Vladimir Putin's side gave in favor for having the rest of the hour and 45 minutes of the interview, which is basically Putin presenting his best case for why he's doing what he is doing. Uh, That is very much for the Russian people, not for American people. Um, So like the idea that this is some kind of brave thing to go over there and do this kind of like truth-telling journalism, it it, it is not without its bravery. Of course, they could just decide to lock him up. That would be a very strange thing for Putin to choose to do given the attention around all of this. But you have to know that this was largely on the terms that Putin wanted it to be on because as a lot of people pointed out, 
you you have instances like Barbara Walters interviewing Saddam Hussein. Um, you know, people, there are journalists who have talked to foreign leaders, even ones that we hold in ill repute before. Yes, Barbara Walters also didn't spend four years prior to that on a show every night saying that they hope, you know, that he hoped, that she hoped that Iraq would win any conflicts that it got into. Tucker Carlson has said that about Russia. So I think those are reasonable things to take into consideration when evaluating what has happened here. But what did you make of this interview? And is it a good idea to for somebody like Tucker to interview someone like Vladimir Putin, who is going to tell you a story, but whether or not it's an accurate story or one that does anything more than serve his specific needs is at best an open question. If not, I would argue a closed one. And that is all you're going to get. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about the parameters. There were rules set to get this interview on air. I think what's interesting is the framing of it when Carlson kind of says, okay, Western media is not telling you the truth about this and this idea of, okay, sure, this is a world leader who has started a conflict that has killed nearly 400,000 people now, but let's just give him a fair shot to explain why he did it. I just am skeptical about the project. Now, is it possible to do this type of interview with integrity? I could say yes, but there's a lot of baggage that I think Tucker has in this space already. And I think that the the fact that the Evan Gershowitz was able to be talked about for that long maybe says that he's less important to Russia than we thought because there's other things that just weren't brought up, you know, war crimes in Ukraine or Alex Novania or other things that were could have been heavy-hitting questions. The real lesson here, I think, is fascinating. In the U.S., we kind of have this very short view of history. You know, 100 years is a long time in the U.S. But Putin really sees this as this kind of um, arc of history that he's Mm -hmm. joining to be part of. And that's just how he thinks about it, which is kind of hard to wrap our heads around. And there is value in understanding how Vladimir Putin views this. Um, even if like he is somewhat self-conscious that the n- historical narrative he's giving is self-serving or inaccurate, it is also, I think, valuable from the sense of understanding the message that Vladimir Putin wants the Russian people to hear because that is who the audience for him through this was less so. I mean, there's been you know the, the jokes and the memes that have come out of this have been kind of funny, but there's the like Tucker kind of begging like, you know, say NATO, say anything about NATO, say literally anything about NATO. And he won't. He very Putin very easily could have done fan service for Tucker's audience. He didn't do that. He did what is fan service essentially for the Russian audience, which he is trying to hold together in the face of this not going the way that I think he hoped it had been. So I think there's you know people who are throwing out the term treason for what Carlson did are being silly. That I have no particular problem per se, with him going to do this. But I do think it's entirely fair to look askance at what Carlson is doing, given what we know of his priors and given what we can logically assume about the nature of an interview like this. I mean, it's, it seemed to me that it was a bit opportunistic for both of them, right? I mean, uh, Tucker Carlson has a brand and he's trying to expand that brand on the 
site, formerly known as Twitter. So he has his own motives. It seems, seems to me pretty obvious that, that Putin was using Tucker to mouthpiece his message to the world in English. And that's pretty standard for the way the Soviets and uh, in, in years past, at least, right, the way the, the Soviet Union would use media, uh, particularly Western media. But, but also, I mean, Putin's pretty, pretty smart at, at using Western media to broadcast what he wants. So I, I personally did, didn't think it was that big of a deal. I mean, it, it was somewhat to me a, a bit curious that Tucker would go this route. But I mean, if, if, if it's all about clicks and likes and views and brand and building your name and platforming, all those things, it sort of makes sense. But the, the idea, as, as Noah said, that he's going to go in and really push Putin on, on some things is, is really a bit a bit laughable. Uh, it was it was a controlled environment, of course, and and perhaps the 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 lesson is that whenever you interview a world leader, they're going to answer the questions that they that they want to answer in the way that benefits them, and that's exactly I think what happened in this case. Let's move to our final topic of the program today, uh, which is I'm just going to ask a question: How old? is too old to be the president of the United States or a leader of any significant country. This is a question that's been with us for a while now, considering that it was a relevant question to have asked about the 2000 presidential election. For those of us who've been around a while, I can recall the concern over John McCain I believe it's uh, 74 years old, being too old to be president. Bob Dole at 71 in 96, being too old to be president. Ronald Reagan running for a second term, being too old to be president. Uh, Joe Biden is 82. And the devastating part for him was the release of this report from uh, a gentleman named Her who is the special counsel who has been appointed to investigate the retention of classified documents that Joe Biden did. And this is you know, similar in a sense to the you know, uh, classified documents that Donald Trump also took. Maybe their attitudes about it were a little different. But the devastating part of the report was essentially her saying to the attorney general of the United States, there was... Uh, a willfulness here in the retention of these documents, but that he felt he couldn't secure a conviction if they were to charge Biden because the man that a jury would see put in front of them was old and struggling to recall things. The Apparently, he um, had to ask multiple times or at least once when he started being vice president of the United States, when he stopped being vice president of the United States. He couldn't recall within a few years the year that his son, Bo Biden, died. Um, people who follow this stuff closely will know that he has often said that Bo Biden died in Iraq. Bo Biden did not die in Iraq. Now, you can make the case that he got the cancer that took his life. Um, may have been contributed to or in some way spurred by burn pits in Iraq that he was inhaling. We don't know that for sure. 
but he did not die over there in combat, which is the implication or the in, in, in what is implied often by Joe Biden when he talks about this. Uh, then the day that this report is released, Joe Biden comes out and does a press conference at about 8 p.m. that goes okay-ish, and then he starts to walk off, and then he comes back, and he misidentifies the president of Egypt, al-Sisi, as the president of Mexico. Within a week, he has, uh, Joe Biden has said that he talked to Helmut Kohl, uh, who died in the 90s, former chancellor of Germany, and uh, former French president Francois Mitterrand, who, again, was president more than a decade and a half ago and who died years ago. This is, as I was saying to Noah before the program started today, the ironclad rule of Washington is that the stories that stick are the stories that reconfirm what everybody already believes to be true. And... Something around 80 percent, I think, in the last poll I saw, believe that Biden is too old to be president. So I'll turn it back around to the initial question that I asked. And we're not a political podcast, so we're not tackling this from the partisan, is this good for Trump, is this bad for Biden, whatever. The basic question, how should we think about this? We should revere people who are older and have experience. But at what point do we have to start being worried about not only the ability of a man to do the job, but the well-being of the man himself who is in this situation, maybe being put in this situation, maybe being held in this situation, um, that's not good for him and not good for the country. So for me, this is not really a matter of age in terms of the number, but mental fitness, sort of physical, mental and, and physical fitness. His age to me is really irrelevant. I think that if you look at how he's been speaking, how he's been walking, uh, how he's been, been moving around, it just seems to me that he's not mentally and physically fit for the job. His age is not really material. I'll give a, a couple of, of examples. Thomas Sowell is in his 90s. If you've seen any recent interviews with Thomas Sowell, he is sharp. And he is on it. And if you compare a 93-year-old Thomas Sowell in an interview and an 81-year-old or so Joe Biden in an in, in interview, there's a really, really big difference. Another product, uh, pop culture benign example is Just Judy. I mean, Just Judy is 81 years old herself. If you look at her new television series, she is just as sharp as she ever has been. Biden is not there. Yeah, but Biden's 81. Bernie Sanders, by comparison, is 82. He's a year older. But if you just put them side by side, you would not think that Bernie Sanders was older than Joe Biden. Yeah, sure. Age is just a number, but also memory is just a faculty. Yeah. You know, right. The, right. Uh, we have to look at this as what are the faculties that this person has. And for the highest office of the land, I think it's right for people to have another layer of skepticism over just, you know, if we think about a scholar or a, a judge, those are important, really important too. But this is, there's another level here that I think skepticism is okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about, about that number. I think as Americans, we owe it to the world uh, to put the best person up for the job. And I don't know that we're doing that in either case uh, this, this round. And it's just striking to me that we have a nation of 337 million people. And this is the best we're telling the world that we can do uh, are two, two men in their, in their 80s. And, 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 and perhaps we need to think 
clearly, maybe maybe we actually need to do some some deep dives on our own sort of processes in this country to think about how we got here and and what what happened what what has happened what sort of incentive structures get us to a point where you were where the Democrats are putting this man forward and it seems that they refuse at least at, right now to 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 make any adjustments and and the curious thing to me is like why why is that it is redolent of very broken political institutions that you know to your point Anthony that we we end up with not just this choice but this choice again uh, one that nobody liked the last time around, and they're going to just run the whole thing back uh, again. It it is you're you're right, though. That is entirely the the way that we are understanding the capacity of the person to do the job, and it is a legitimate thing. Um, and th- that is one of the things that I've been resentful of is that there there are people who have been raising these questions for a while and constantly being told that it's just unfair to ask those questions about uh, about the president of the United States. It's not at all unfair to ask those questions. Again, the problem with the story is it reconfirms what a lot of people already were thinking. And if he's going to continue to make errors like this that suggests that, you know, either his memory is not at all what it used to be, or I guess that he's communing with the dead, um, which is an entirely different concern. I would be interested what Francois Mitterrand and Helmut Kohl have to say about what's going on in the world right now, I guess. But I don't know that he's communing with the dead. Um, it is It is going to be... A problem. One of the other defenses that was offered of Biden was that when he sat for the deposition, that was the source of a lot of his misremembering that is cited in this her report. Um, the defense was like, well, this was very shortly after uh, the events of October 7th. So he had a lot on his mind. That's the job. Like this is quite literally the job that he's being hired for is to move from crisis to crisis and to deal with these kinds of things. And it is entirely legitimate for people to be worried that he is not capable of dealing with those kinds of things. Another excuse was that the, um, you know, he did this press conference at 745 uh, at night, supposed to start at 745, really started about eight o'clock. That was late. That is not late. Uh, It is just, you know, it is not late by the standards of what we know of the hours that the president of the United States keeps and the things that they need to do. I mean, people will remember the whole like, you know, Hillary Clinton, who's going to answer the 3 a.m. phone call when somebody needs to answer that? Uh, it, it this is a taxing job. Everybody can look at the pictures of you know George W. Bush in 2000 and George W. Bush in 2008 when he gets out of the office. Out of the office, Barack Obama in 2009 to Barack Obama in 2017 when he leaves the White House. This job ages you, even if you're a much younger man. And both Bush and Obama were, and. You, you can even see it with Trump, too. Like the four years of all of that will age you very fast is entirely a legitimate thing for people to be concerned about. And we should be concerned about it for the well-being of Joe Biden himself. That is something I feel gets lost in the political conversation around this. It's like, you know, this is a man whose faculties are declining. 
and he is putting himself and nobody is stepping in to tell him that like maybe it is time to step aside, that you just can't do this job. But we get so locked into like we have to do this. The you know, as I believe as John Wooten said that the graveyards are full of indispensable people. Um, there is some humility that we should have about ourselves and our willingness to step away from things at the right time and not overstay our welcome. That is not a political commentary on either of these two individuals, but only to say that it does become evident to every, anyone who's ever dealt with an aging relative knows what that looks like. And as a result, I think they recognize it here. And we would do well and the people around Joe Biden would do well to kindly suggest to him that maybe – this is not the thing that he should be doing with his life at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, if if he were if he were up for a a greeter at, at Walmart, I'm just like, yes, let's let's go ahead, right? He'd, he'd be perfect for that. But given the nature of the job itself, I think that what we, we do this in other industries in this country. I mean, if he was a brain surgeon, he'd be yanked from the from the, the OR, right? I mean, if if he was if he was operating a nuclear power plant, he'd be yanked. Right, so we we do have this these standards in, in other parts of our, our our country. Why not with the highest office in the land? Some might argue in the world that we would sort of introduce these these, these sorts of standards. And you're exactly right. I think on two things. One, his lack of humility, and but but maybe it's his age. I mean, you have, at some point you have to take the keys. Uh, from from folks who are, who are declining, but secondly, though, to be fair, stubbornness is a long tradition in the Biden political story. So I think we sh- we should add that context. Well, that that goes to my second point. I, I don't know that he has the humility to say that that someone else would be better than this. I I see I see him declining. I want to retire. I, I actually want to enjoy the years I have left with my wife and my family, and I, I want to enjoy vacations and 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 fishing. I, I, I'm actually ready to step aside and let a new generation of of leaders emerge. Perhaps he lacks that that humility at providing an opportunity for someone younger. And this is an American ideal that has existed, and I wish we could kind of bring it back, is this idea of the, you know, the American Cincinnatus. I've talked about it here before, but Washington kind of steps down, and that was celebrated for a long time as this tradition of stepping down at the right time is an American ideal. We're far from that ideal now, but that is something that I would love to see come back. Well, all, all it takes is one person to trample on the tradition to change the whole dynamic of it, right? And that was FDR. That it was, it was not instantiated in the Constitution that you only served two terms, which is what Washington did. It was taken as a precedent that you were not greater than the father of the country and that you should step aside after serving two terms. FDR did not do that. And as a result, Congress turned around shortly thereafter and said, all right, fine. If not everybody is going to uphold the tradition on their own, then we're going to write it into the Constitution. And the mistake that FDR made was saying, I'm just too important. This exactly. project is just too important. It will The country will die without me kind of thing. And so that's where, I mean, no one is too important if these ideals exist. Let's to that point, let, let's click borrow from uh, uh, my friends at the our friends at the editors podcast National Review and do an exit question on this before we end the program. Um, there is a floor for being president of the United States. You have to be over 35 years of age in order to be president. Would you be in favor of a ceiling on the age 
that a president could have on the day that they take office? Anthony. Great question. Again, for me, it's not about the age. I, I would be more interested in some sort of mental fitness test or at least some way to test whether or not the person was an absolute narcissist. If there was a, a a, any sort of narcissism limit test, I would be in favor of, of that because it seems to me that on many sides in our, in our current political culture, that's the problem. We have a culture of, of politicians who are absolute narcissists, which, which discourages them from stepping away when they, when they need to step away. Yeah. So if we did a ceiling at 75 or 80 or you know, fill in the blank, it doesn't solve the problem of kind of rapid onset dementia in the extreme at 60 or, or whatever age. So I think we have to build in ways through the election process to catch these sorts of things. So I think debates are a good way. There are different ways that we can catch kind of uh, – debates do a really bad job of showing substance on issues, but it does show if someone can think on their feet. So there are skills that we can get from certain parts of the process. Yeah, there, there's going to be some interesting moments coming up in the near future. Joe Biden is going to give the uh, State of the Union address coming up in a couple weeks here. be interesting to see how he does with that. There's going to be – there's an open question as as to whether or not he, there will actually be presidential debates. There are predicates that have been laid for either one of them to say that they won't debate the other person. And in fact, I think that's the most likely thing that is going to happen because there are reasons that um, Trump would want to do it, but he is going to have a hard time since he didn't participate in any of the primary debates and that Biden's not going to want to do it uh, because of the reasons that we've been discussing. Um, Reagan was 69 years old. When he entered the White House, uh, George H.W. Bush was 64. Eisenhower was 62. Andrew Jackson, John Adams and Harry Truman were all over 60. Um, so I'd heard I'd seen one person suggest the idea of a minimum uh, or maximum age of 60. Uh, and I think I'm opposed to this generally for the same reason that I'm opposed to the idea of term limits. Term limits already exist. Every two to four years or six years for senators, people can go to the polls and they can elect somebody new if they don't want that person to be in office anymore. And I think people can make these kinds of calculations about somebody like a Joe Biden or a Donald Trump or anybody else of an age where you start to wonder about their ability to do the job. Um, I think the part of the whole American project is trusting voters to make these decisions, even if we think that sometimes they make bad choices in the process. It is not the role for some people to step in and stop people from uh, voters, by and large, from making poor choices. There's a reason checks and balances exist. There's a reason the government is structured the way that it is structured. Um, but to some extent, if this is what they want, this is what they get. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you'll find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. I again want to encourage you to subscribe to our magazine, Religion and Liberty, where you can read not only Mustafa's great essay that we discussed earlier in the program, 
but other great pieces by John Grove, who was a guest on this program last week, Bishop Robert Barron, George Nash, Wilfred McClay, Samuel Gregg, and many more. Only $29.99 will get four issues of our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times per year. Look in the show notes for this episode for the link where you can subscribe. Thanks to Anthony. Thanks to Noah. And a special thanks to Mustafa Akiol. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.